The U.S. is dishing out another blow to China, this time for its ambitions on U.S. soil. Lawmakers have introduced a new House bill that, if passed, would ban China and other adversaries from purchasing American farmland. The measure echoes another bill revealed just last week in the Senate with a similar goal. But how far can these measures go, and will they serve their intended effects? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Beijing's efforts to buy up U.S. land are taking another hit. On Monday, a House lawmaker presented a bill that would ban China and other adversaries from purchasing American farmland. Representative Mary Miller is backing it. Here's more. It's called the Saving American Farms from Adversaries Act. It would prohibit foreigners from buying public or private land in the U.S. for five years. This is Miller's first bill in the new Congress. The Congresswoman says America is on a dangerous path of losing self-sufficiency in farming and that Congress must respond to the economic and national security threats posed by China. Another related bill hit the Senate floor last week. Sponsored by Senators Mike Rounds and John Tester, the bipartisan bill would block China, Russia, Iran and North Korea from buying or leasing U.S. farmland and agricultural businesses. Speaking on the evening edit with Fox News, Senator Rounds explained that food security is national security and added that the Chinese Communist Party has increased their holdings of farmland outside of China by a thousand percent in the last few years. They own 1,300 egg processing facilities outside of China at a value of $35 billion. But there's another concern. Even bigger than food security is the issue of national security. As some farmland China has bought or is trying to buy are near critical U.S. military bases. In response, 22 U.S. states are either taking or considering measures to restrain foreigners from buying farmland. That's nearly triple the states taking similar initiatives two years ago. The new Congress set up a bipartisan select committee on China last month. High on its to-do list is reviewing China's ambitions on U.S. soil. The alleged Chinese spy balloon has been shot down, but the questions surrounding it are still hovering over the United States. The major query right now, is China planning to send more balloons over the U.S.? The White House says it's likely. This is not the first time and will not likely be the last time that the Chinese have sent surveillance balloons over the continental U.S. As for other questions, will U.S.-China relations be weakened by the balloon incident? No. Biden said Monday that the takedown of the balloon didn't damage Washington's relationship with Beijing. And here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's comment. And it's up to China to show it is serious about its words of being a responsible country. And so it's up to China to, to figure out what kind of relationship that they want. This after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed his China trip indefinitely last week. China described the balloon as not American on Tuesday. That was the reply to a spokeswoman who asked whether China had requested the balloon debris be returned. She added that Beijing will continue to defend its legitimate rights and interests. Earlier, Beijing filed a formal complaint with the U.S. It called the decision to shoot down the balloon an attack on a Chinese civilian unmanned airship by military force. 
A second balloon detected above South America appears to still be lingering in the region. Beijing also claims it's of a civilian nature. And looking to China's neighbor, flying objects have also been reported to have flown over Japan in the past. The nation is looking at potential links between the spy balloon in the U.S. and flying objects in Japan. Apple reportedly removing a Twitter-like social media app from its Chinese app store. The decision because of content deemed illegal by the Chinese communist regime. The software is called Damus. Its developers shared a screenshot of a notification from Apple on Friday. It states that the app failed a security assessment of information services with attribute of public opinions or capable of social mobilization, adding that it would be removed from the China App Store because it includes content that is illegal in China, per demand from the Cyberspace Administration of China. The removal comes just two days after Apple approved Damis's listing in the App Store. Damis is built on top of Noster, a decentralized social media protocol. It's designed to give users full control over their data. Former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey donated 14 Bitcoin to its development last year. That's around $320,000. The removal from China's App Store is likely due to the decentralized structure of the Noster protocol. That's because it could allow users to circumvent Beijing's internet censorship. The app entered the top 10 in the social networking chart just hours after its release. A new protest in Wuhan last Friday, with locals rallying against a planned waste disposal site. Hundreds gathered outside a district government building, calling on authorities to pick another location for the facility. Under the official plan, the landfill would become one of the city's largest, spanning an area of more than six acres. But it will sit adjacent to a national wetland park, with multiple schools and residential areas just half a mile away. It's probably only 800 meters away from where we live. The elementary school and the construction is very close, just about 600 meters away. The residential density here is especially high, with seven or eight neighborhoods, four or five universities around, and many kindergartens. Fong added that officials refused to present any documents assessing the project's environmental impact. Residents fear such a large landfill would prove disastrous for the ecosystem and public health. After fruitless appeals to the Land and Resources Bureau and other relevant authorities, opponents decided to launch the protest. But authorities swooped in almost immediately. Footage online shows police dispersing the protesters through violent means. One man visibly lifted up and arrested by several police officers. The police arrested about 20 people and hadn't released them by nearly 10 p.m. the next night. Other protesters have gathered outside the police station, demanding release for the detained. Next, remember these young people? They joined a Beijing vigil last year, gathering to remember those who died in a building fire that sparked under China's lockdown. But after the memorial, one by one, attendees started to vanish. Now, human rights groups and universities are condemning Beijing for their disappearances. Here's the story. Beijing has been quietly rounding up people who protested against its COVID-19 rules. International Press Freedom Watchdog Reporters Without Borders, or RSF, revealed that over 100 demonstrators remain in detention in China. 
The CCP has a tradition of binding its time for revenge and then secretly arresting people, and it does not want others to know about the arrests. One of them is Lee Setchi, a graduate from Goldsmiths University of London. In November, she attended a public vigil for Beijing for the victims of an apartment building fire in Xinjiang. Beijing's zero COVID-19 restrictions had prevented people in the lockdown building from escaping. Reports say Lee is still detained in China and spent her 27th birthday in custody. The University of London called it a suppression of free speech and urged Beijing to immediately release all those detained in relation to the vigil. Another vigil participant, Tao Shershin, also remains in custody. She recorded this video after her friends and fellow vigil joiners started disappearing one by one. Former journalist Chin Zeyi also got arrested. Her alma mater, the University of Chicago, called for her release. And she was let out on bail last month. It's difficult to estimate the scale of the arrests, as relatives of the detainees refused to speak out for fear of more serious retribution. New evidence is calling Beijing's latest virus death count into question. China's CDC added more than 3,000 to the country's COVID-19 death toll. That was during the week from January 27th to February 2nd. The figure brings the country's official total to over 82,000. But a survey by the Epoch Times shows that actual death in just one city may far exceed that number. The report cites 15 funeral homes in Shanghai that run at least 80 cremation furnaces, with 33 bodies cremated per furnace per day. There were at least 160,000 local deaths in the 60 days after China's zero COVID-19 policy was lifted. This without counting the unburned bodies piling up at funeral homes. The largest crematorium in Shanghai told NTD that it now takes more than a month before ashes are ready for pickup. You have to wait a month to collect the ashes. It's not possible to do it faster. Previous remains must be dealt with first. Residents in Shanghai say the wait time used to be about an hour. Funeral homes work in three shifts, 24 hours a day. That's still too slow. In times of high demand, they may even burn two bodies together, and it still takes a couple of months to return the ashes. By then, customers will wonder if the ashes are even their loved ones. I went to the funeral home and saw the dead piled up in batches. Some say they burned two to three bodies at once. People were told to wait half a month before they can collect the ashes. The problem is, you don't even know whose ashes you'll be collecting. Is Facebook handing over American user data to Chinese companies? U.S. Senators Mark Warner and Marco Rubio have some questions for Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. They want to know if Facebook developers in China and Russia have access to certain user data. Here's the latest. The bipartisan pair say they have an internal meta document that reveals that. Their offices released their letter to Zuckerberg yesterday. They wrote that the document shows 90,000 developers in China had been given access to sensitive user information. That includes private messages, profile data, and photos. That's despite Facebook never being able to operate in China. The senators say over 42,000 developers in Russia had access to the information and thousands in Iran and North Korea. They say Facebook appears to have known since at least 2018. Facebook did not immediately respond to a request for comment. It's still unclear if the Facebook data in question is related to American users. 
Is China helping Russia in the Ukraine war? Experts say Beijing is sending military technology over to Russia. Gear like fighter jet parts, navigation equipment and jamming technology. All in violation of sanctions. Let's take a closer look. The Wall Street Journal looked at over 84,000 shipment records. Tens of thousands of those shipments contained products that could be used in the military. We talked to international politics expert Anders Court. Russia depends on complicated navigational uh, computer chip parts for all of its weaponry, whether that is, uh, you know, smart bombs, uh, cruise missiles, uh, jet fighters. Um, and the U.S. and Europe have sanctioned those items to try to stop the production of uh, uh, Russia's bombs and, and delivery systems. Uh, so when China steps in uh, with those products, China is enabling the Russian regime in a direct way. Some examples include China's state-owned aircraft firm Avic, which shipped $1.2 million worth of fighter jet parts to Russian defense firm Rostec. There's Chinese state-owned defense firm Poly Technologies, which gave military helicopter navigation equipment to Russian state-owned Rossoborn Export. There's Fujian Nan'an Baofeng Electronic Company, which sent communications jamming equipment to Rossoborn Export. We talked to someone from Ukraine, economics professor Roman Shermeta. He believes this is just business as usual for China. Businesses are driven by self-interest, right? So if um, since Russia is not getting technology and uh, equipment and things necessary for war anywhere else, the Russia is willing to pay a significant premium to get those technologies and the, that equipment. And so obviously... You know, uh, for somebody who is doing business, who is after the profit, it's a very lucrative option. Shermeta says that if these reports are confirmed, China may face consequences, and these consequences could greatly harm China's export-oriented economy. We spoke to foreign policy expert Harley Lipman, who says the U.S. needs to put pressure on China. The United States has a number of economic levers that it could use with China. I mean, China still needs the United States to purchase its goods and to operate in the world economy that it does. The United States is still the largest market in the world. It needs the United States and it needs to uh, do business with Western Europe. That means that the United States and Western Europe has leverage. We could apply pressure to China. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was supposed to go to Beijing this weekend and discuss China's relationship with Russia. But because of the Chinese surveillance balloon caught floating in the U.S. airspace, the meeting has been postponed to an unknown time. Coming up, do problems in China really impact Americans? And that's our job, is to awaken the consciousness of uh, people and institutions and explain to them what's at stake. We sat down with Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Vice Chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, to zoom in on that question. He shares his experiences about Communist China's threat, the democratic U.S., and more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. 
do issues happening in China really matter for people in the U.S.? And what role does technology play in connecting them, both positively and negatively? At the International Religious Freedom Summit in Washington, D.C., we sat down with Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Weisenthal Center, to find out more. Cooper also serves as Vice Chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Well, I think the most recent uh, personal example that I had that was uh, after that terrible incident in China where the apartment house had been sealed due to COVID and the people were uh, killed, um, a number of uh, uh, Chinese Americans, especially students at the University of Southern California, announced an evening vigil on the various issues. It was a very emotional thing. I came just as a citizen to experience it and show solidarity. What I found to be really shocking was how many of the young people who were there were wearing full face masks. The fear, uh, and I think justified, that maybe some of the people in the audience were holding up their iPhones. Uh, maybe that was being communicated to Beijing, facial recognition. So I said, reflected on it and said, here I am, I'm a citizen born in the United States, standing on the street in Los Angeles near the historic, you know, L.A. Coliseum where the Olympics will be in, in 2028. And it's just unbelievable. Um, people worried about the use of technology to uh, go back to China where their loved ones can be targeted uh, or worse. You see people changing the way they behave, changing how they speak, um, which issues they're going to talk out about. That's intimidation, it's bullying, and it can get a lot worse. We learned plenty about that in the 20th century. We had Hitler, we had Stalin, we had Mao. But what you have in the 21st century is the upgraded technology. And when you have that kind of technology in the hands of uh, evil actors who are just in it for the power, just for the control, uh, I think it should be a wake-up call to people who don't care about Uyghurs, Chinese, and they have their own little world and don't bother me. But what we see coming here is a challenge to every single person, especially people who live in, uh, in democracy. So we need to recalibrate our own uh, priorities and attention because we can wake up one morning and not be in control of very much, even in the democracies. I want to just clarify really quickly. So these students who were in Southern California, they were wearing the masks not because of COVID, but because they were afraid of their Correct. face being these recognized. These are full face masks. Wow. Uh, there were many people uh, wearing face masks. And these, this was run by a variety of student groups. Uh, the presenters were all uh, Chinese. I don't know if they were U.S. born or on student visas. Uh, it obviously grew very emotional. There's Oh, there are many, many issues of concern. Uh, and I, I think really what we need here is continued education and looking for, um, for allies in the, in the battle. I, was, I met with Uyghur leaders recently in Tokyo. Uh, Japan is not known to be the easiest place to apply for citizenship. There are about 3,000 Uyghurs there. Many of them have become Japanese citizens. So. It's interesting to see where some of the areas of support are, but as we also heard here at, uh, at this uh, conference, one of the key issues going forward for everyone 
is still supply chain and the, the activities uh, of the mega companies. If the corporations were to make a decision that they don't want to have anything to do with this kind of uh, forced labor, slave labor, and in any way support of uh, or turning a blind eye to what's going on with the, with the weaker uh, population, that's going to be the key issue um, going forward. And that's um, not an easy thing to do because, again, the average person is saying, if I can buy something more cheaply in an era of difficult economic times, what do I care what the Chinese are doing to a group who's, you know, the name of the, I don't know where they live, I can't even spell it, why should I care? And that's our job, is to awaken the consciousness of uh, people and institutions and explain to them what's at stake. And Rabbi, it seems, say, from an American or freedom-loving perspective, often it's easy for maybe bad actors to use technologies against us. But how can we really use this to maybe use it for good? Because I think you also mentioned, you know, in this age of social media and connectedness, there's no excuse for ignorance on these issues. So how can we actually use this modern age to spread awareness? You all have really shown the leadership of uh, taking on a behemoth and trying to be both, uh, you know, truthful to issues, but also to push uh, the broader question of, uh, of freedom for for people in China. Uh, so social media is an extremely powerful tool, and I think for those of us who are trying to use it for good, we need to know a couple of basic things. There's no online uh, filter. There's no librarian. Uh, young people are like sponges and really the, you have to figure out a way how to reach them where they're at. And that's why the TikTok approach of you know, 30 second sound bites uh, is extremely daunting when you want to try to educate people about history. Um, uh, yesterday, um, one of the main uh, congressional representatives here, uh, whose name I won't use, but a very powerful uh, person. Uh, we spoke for a few minutes and I remember he said, you know, my father fought to defeat the Nazis as he, an American veteran. And he said, my, my son doesn't really relate to it, but he said, I relate to it every day. I remember what he fought for, what his friends died for. And clearly for someone like that in a position of responsibility, he has the historic basis from the last century to better uh, inform what his priorities should be as, as an important, powerful actor on Capitol Hill. And yet, you have his son, who's you know, perhaps even born in the 21st century. A lot of young people here have no real historic perspective. The 20th century is like ancient history, and that's how I feel when I come to these gatherings, you know, like a, like a dinosaur. But, I think both in terms of, uh, certainly from the Jewish experience, memory is the key. And that means not just filtering, just remembering the good being nostalgic, it also means learning from our mistakes and from our tragedies. There's no shortcut to that. You really have to make a commitment to educate your children, uh, educate your peers, and it's gonna be a longer process than one or two TikTok videos. Rabbi Cooper, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I hope I can come on again sometime. I would love that.
That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.